Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Mind your business only on Money FM 89.3. Welcome to the breakfast show. For years, businesses have found themselves at a crossroads during crises, making decisions that could make or break the company's future. These decisions often carry the weight of thousands of livelihoods and years of dedication. Now imagine being a CEO of a company on the brink of collapse facing a pivotal decision that could seal its fate or herald a miraculous revival. Our C-suite guest today faced precisely that dilemma in 2019. A shift in business strategy loomed and it could potentially mean losing over 600 employees and wiping out years of hard work. Now, instead of conceding defeat, he made a daring move. An eight-figure sum was poured into this drowning business. At first glance, it seemed like a wide gamble, but it proved to be the turning point. Just two years later, in 2022, the company generated a yearly net income in the millions. So what drove this high-stakes decision, and how did he manage to turn the tide? Well, let's welcome the industry veteran of 30 years, Hao Meng Hock. He's the CEO of OMS. It's a manufacturing company that provides services to companies in the oil and gas industry. We're talking repairs, uh, as well as the manufacturing of pipes and casing connectors for oil production and drilling. Meng Hock, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You're very, very welcome. Let's turn the clock back a little bit to that time in 2019 or perhaps before even. What were some of the initial challenges that OMS faced before that pivotal decision you had to make? Well, it all probably started back in the middle of 2014 when the the oil industry basically went through a very rough patch. And from that point onwards, it took many years, right, from 14 all the way to maybe 18 and 19 there was this struggle to get the industry up. And the term lower for longer Mm. seems to be that popular phrase that has been used within that industry. Because normally when you have a down cycle, it's probably a 12 to 14, 15 month cycle, but it went over for years. And because of that, then there was this decision by the previous shareholder to basically wanting to exit that business. Mm. And hence that decision was made at that period of time. Mm. Now, this management buyout has been known to employees as Project Iron Man, successfully concluded in June. Can you walk us through the circumstances back then? And maybe first and foremost, why is it called Project Iron Man? Is it sort of inspired by the movie? (laughs) Yes. uh, Actually, back then, uh, we have the whole series of Iron Man 1, 2, 3, and you've got the Avengers series coming up. Mm. So it was a little bit of uh, Tony Stark, the swagger, the anti-social kind of behavior initially, having a little bit of a paranoia where he was kind of, he wasn't very friendly initially. But then he always had that plan A, plan B, plan C to... Mm to execute in saving humanity, if you want to call it. Mm-hmm. So at that point in time, it was probably that that period or that inspiration that kind of got me to coin this term Project Iron Man. Mm. So you are a very own Tony Stark, if you will. Well, I'm not going to say that I'm exactly Tony Stark, but it has some form of inspiration that that came about during that challenging period. All right. Now, it's often difficult for employees to perceive this decision, sometimes in a positive light. How did they look at this decision to invest such a significant sum during 
such a difficult period. Could you please share with us any anecdotes, examples that illustrate some of their reactions? Well, when that decision was made, actually, mm. uh, there was only a handful, basically a handful, you can count with your fingers, that are who, who knew about that this, this particular project. I wanted to keep it a kind of quiet and low-key. At that point in time, the industry was recovering, and uh, we had about 600 employees. So when the announcement was made that, look, we potentially want to exit the business and liquidate the business, etc., mm. and all that, then straight away in my mind was 600 employees. What am I going to do with them? 600 employees times, say, two in a family, that's 1,200, including the family members. And a lot of them have been with me since I joined the organization seven, eight years ago. And there was a lot of what we call the hanging there together, let's go through the difficult time, the yeah. trust and the camaraderie behind it. Mm. And hence, I decided to then go ahead and conduct Project Ironman. Mm. Again, like I said, only a handful knew about it. It was yeah. only towards the end, closer to the conclusion of the project, that many realizes then, hey, you know, that's why I'm always talking about, or I'm always showing the, the avatar of an Ironman. I'm always <laughs> talking about a little bit about the Avengers stories, etc. and all that. So, so it was much later on before they knew it. Yeah, well, that trust appeared to pay off uh, and it paid rich dividends, in fact, because you managed to manufacture that investment from an eight-figure sum into $34 million in annual net income in just a matter of two years. How did you manage to steer the ship and achieve such a, a huge amount? Well, it's, it's a long journey. It didn't just happen, say, two years or, or just recently. It took a while. So when I came over into the industry, when I took over the organization, one of the things that I wanted to do and was still doing it is basically to have a different portfolio of products and services. Mm. We were good in, in the legacy business, but I felt that we needed more. And hence, there was a lot of work being put into setting up the engineering function, doing a lot of R&D, doing a lot of product development, product uh, marketing, example. Sure. And then it kind of slowly walked its way to where we or what we have achieved. Mm. It wasn't easy, but that kind of starting to breed a lot of success. All right. If you're just joining us, we're in conversation with Haomeng Hock. He's the CEO of OMS. It's a manufacturing company that provides services to companies in the oil and gas industry. His business, of course, was on the brink of collapse. And in 2019, he had to make a key decision. He ended up pouring an eight-figure sum into the business, and the company reached an annual net income of $34 million just two years later. Meng Hock, you have cast your net a little bit wider in terms of geographical reach. Could you share some of the insights of your expansion into multiple countries and its impact on the company's growth? What are some of the key lessons you learned along the way? I think uh, we operate in six countries, and mm. we have 11 facilities. And as we expand, and our largest facility is actually in Saudi Arabia. It okay. was just concluded about a year, year and a half ago. And yep. we spent about $10 million in constructing that facility. Mm. But as we expand either from the existing legacy facilities to newer one and future one, one key element is basically to understand the culture of the country that you actually operate in. Mm. A lot of the countries that we operate in today or we do business in today are pushing for what we call localization. Hence, nationalism, wanting to transfer technology and knowledge into the respective countries. Mm. So there's that need to understand how that whole operating country works, the people the law, tax, for example, the financial systems, etc. So that becomes key. Mm. Uh, when we built our Saudi facility, we thought it was just a one-year project. It took us two years. COVID didn't help. The regulation was also maturing. So we were going through, we were building, and then we were also trying to understand what was going on. 
in Indonesia, for example, then there's the push for localization in Saudi mm. Arabia, like I said, Thailand to a certain degree. So a lot of this push to be local then uh, forces us, not forces us, but encourages us to then build local teams, local expertise mm. to be able to serve the industry, serve the customers within that country. So culture, understanding the laws or the rules of the operating countries becomes key. Yeah, where did you find it most difficult to culturally assimilate, if you will? Um, where is it? So in the countries that we operate in, mm. Indonesia, we have 100% Indonesian running the show. Sure. Uh, Thailand's the same. Malaysia, close to 100%. Singapore is always the challenge, having foreigners and, and local, 50, yep. 50, 55%, 56%. Saudi Arabia are in the 30s, 35 40% mark. So in the Middle East, probably, that's, that's the challenge in terms mm. of uh, localization and getting into the culture a bit. Uh, sure. It is five hours away from a time zone perspective. It mm. is very different from Southeast Asia. And to bring the talent, to find the talent in that particular world, mm. uh, it is a challenge. And if you've been to that part of the world, you realize that there are a lot of also what we call foreign workers sure. in that part of the world. So mm. to localize, to get to, in this case for Saudi Arabia, where they're pushing for 70% local, yeah. it is going to be one of those uh, hard run. All right. Now, as they say, change is the only constant in life. You've embarked on a number of green initiatives as well. You're focusing on exploring renewable energy tech. Your latest project is called the Additive Manufacturing Project. Can you share more details about this current initiative? So in the additive manufacturing space, it's been around for the last five, six years. I use the term talk of the town. And we've been uh, able to partner with Simtech, the Singapore uh, Manufacturing Technology uh, mm. Institute, to go down this road because this then gives us an alternative with regards to material. This gives, uh, gives us an alternative with regards to the process in developing our product or components within that industry. So we're looking into then how can we innovate, finding different material base, qualifying mm. them, testing them, and to try and reduce some of this uh, carbon footprint, carbon emission challenges along mm. the way. So this is something that's new, at least for us in the company, and it has attracted a lot of, uh, of the team members of the staff who is basically wondering what is this thing called additive manufacturing or 3D printing in layman's term. And uh, we've been able to get that traction and hopefully we're able to then go down the product development, the innovation bit when it comes to the renewable or the green energy part of the industry. All right. Beyond additive manufacturing, then, how do you intend to pave the way as a harbinger, if you will, in the green energy space, as well as to ensure there are more efficient manufacturing processes in the future? Well, additive manufacturing is, is one. Mm. Uh, the rest will be looking at how do we recycle and, and reuse. So in our sector, we use a lot of steel. They don't come in kilograms, right? They come in tons and tons of steel that when, when you manufacture equipment for drilling and for exploration purposes. There is an element in, in this where customers are looking at recycling and reusing some of the equipment that they have put in the field. Mm. So in, in, in Indonesia, they've done a lot of what we call plug and abandonment. Mm. So they basically plug and they abandon some of the old wells that they have. And they've sent the equipment back out to us and to basically look at it and say, well, can you refurbish it? Can you repair it so that we can then put it back out to a new field or to a new well? Then that then uh, helps to eliminate, well, I won't say eliminate completely, but then reduces the need to then go back and buy new materials, source new material, and then you will go into that whole carbon cycle challenges again. All right. Now, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the current Middle Eastern conflict, given that you're in the oil and gas space. Yep. 
You talked about oil prices being lower for longer. That doesn't seem to be the case at present, or at least there's a lot of volatility in oil prices now as a result of the conflict, as well as other factors. How do you foresee the impact on the oil and gas industry's future outlook, as well as trends in the region? And where does OMS fall within that conversation? So if you look at the statistics, then five out of the top 10 fossil fuel producing countries actually comes from the Middle East. Mm. You've got Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Iran, and Iraq. Now, they will continue to dominate. The whole saga or challenges when it comes to oil and gas is the oil price. And it has always come down to, at the end of it all, the fundamentals of supply and demand. Are we going to get the supply? Are we going to get the demand? Where are the demands coming from? The demands are normally coming out from the growth of the economics within the regions. Uh, We talk about China growing. We talk about the Europeans probably and uh, the Americas and Southeast Asia especially. Then that will then normally dictate the oil prices, Mm. uh, give and take, right? So where the region is going, you will also find that the region actually has the the lowest cost and the least carbon intensity when it comes to oil. Mm. So all these challenges with regards to carbon emission during the oil and gas production activity, as the analysis go from RISTAT, actually it shows that Saudi Arabia, UAE and Qatar has actually the lowest cost and also the least carbon intensity. Mm. So then that gives them that opportunity to continue to produce Mm. uh, lesser I use the word noise when it comes to carbon emission. It then helps to also then manage this energy transition challenge. A lot of us talk about energy transition and sometimes we think that, well, we just don't want to use fossil fuel and we need to go green, solar, Mm. hydro, you name it. This is not really a switch on, switch off kind of process. Sure, There has to be that transition. And to get to that transition, then the fossil fuel will still be needed along Mm. the way. It's how much and and how long are we going to use them. And uh, with that, then the whole industry needs to be able to manage or need to manage that balancing act for the transition. Now, where we fit in, then we are continuing to grow in the upstream oil and gas sector. We still have product that we have not finished qualifying, developing, etc. and all that. But we'll play our role as well in terms of renewables, the additive manufacturing role. We play our role now at a very high level discussion. We're we're talking about how do we get involved in uh, using river energy for electricity. Uh, We're talking also with some parties with regards to uh, building power generation units, again, for industrial purposes and and whatnot. So there's a form of diversification, if you want to call it. Mm. But the the, the need for fossil fuel will... uh, continue to be there. If you allow me to kind of finish it off, then for national oil companies, international oil companies, they will then probably be under pressure to look at lower carbon intensity kind of fuel or development using technology. Then that reduces the noise, if you want to call it, about carbon emission. Then you go into, with that, you go into carbon capture mm. because you normally want to fix where the problem is. You go to the source and, and, and that's the source when we start to produce and drill. With that, with that being kind of managed, then they have time to spend into renewable energy, which is mm. what Saudi Aramco is doing. If you look at or, or Adnock is doing in the Middle East where they've got hectares and, and large solar panel fields, they're looking into hydro, they're looking into other form of energy as well. All right. Well, plenty in the pipeline then in the oil and gas space. Uh, Meng Hock, thank you so much for your time this morning.
Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> You're very welcome. We've been in conversation with Haomeng Hawk. He's the CEO of OMS, a manufacturing company that provides services to companies in the oil and gas industry. Just to recap, his business was on the brink of collapse. And in 2019, he had to make a key decision. He ended up pouring an eight-figure sum into the business. And just two years later, the company reached an annual net income of 34 million US dollars. So he shared with us some of his experiences about how he managed to engineer such an incredible turnaround during that difficult period. Stay with Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A W E D I O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.